0: Welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with biographers about their work. This time, we interview award-winning journalist and author, Costa Kennedy, about his biography of a sports icon. In True, The Four Seasons of Jackie Robinson, Kennedy takes an episodic approach to examining Robinson's life and significance both on and off the baseball field. Costa Kennedy, the author of a couple of New York Times bestsellers, was interviewed by bio member Kevin Magruder.
1: Costa Kennedy, thank you so much for joining us. Can you talk a little bit about how this biography differs from other biographies of Jackie Robinson?
2: Yes, Kevin. Well, it's great to be on with you. So what I did was I looked at four distinct seasons or years in Robinson's life. Um, they encompassed the year before he began in the major leagues, two seasons as a ball player, and then the last season of his life. And they also represent sort of metaphorically the spring, summer, autumn, and winter of his public life. Uh, so that's really what, what I was interested in doing is, is sort of by focusing in on certain critical areas and, and each season is quite different than the other. Uh, you're able to go a little more into the details and, and I hope bring them to three-dimensional light a little more strongly in that sense. Um, and, you know, there have been earlier cradle to grave biographies. And I didn't feel that I needed to sort of tell every last blow-by-blow blow detail. So with a way to approach it and I and I hope make it a little more accessible for people.
1: Well I really appreciated the level of detail. I should say that I lived in Harlem for 25 years in an apartment building right next to Jackie Robinson Park. And, oh, uh, and so his name was always something that even before I moved there, I, I knew of him but this book really, really brings him to life in so many different ways. What I was particularly struck with in that first section, which focuses on 1946, his beginning years, I think most people are aware of the challenges that he faced, but I knew he was a good baseball player, but I didn't realize how good he was. And that really comes across can you talk about the sources you use to recreate the games? You know, it's it's play by play some of the games, and that's what really I think, as a reader, helped me understand how really gifted he
2: was. Wonderful, yeah. So, I mean, just to touch on the season a little bit. So, a couple of things that you brought up. The first season, which is 1946, when he and Rachel, his, his wife, are living in Montreal. Of course, it had been known that he played there, but it was quite an underreported season. And I'd spent some time with Rachel Robinson uh, over the years. I was at Sports Illustrated, and I had written a long piece about her in about 2012 or so, and then stayed in contact with her and did some other work with her. You know, we had a professional relationship for some time. I spoke to her a lot over the years. And she she would often come back to that year as being such a meaningful important special year for them as a couple for their great experiment. So this is the year before he comes into the major leagues. In 1947, he joined the Brooklyn Dodgers. And that's of course the year that is recognized as him breaking the color barrier. But in 46, he was the only black player. For a brief time he had a black teammate but throughout most of the year who's the only black player in a in an all white, very, very competitive minor league. And it was a critical year you mentioned what a good Ball player he was, he was extremely talented when he came to the Royals and had played quite successfully in the Negro League, but for only 45 games. And he hadn't played all that much baseball in college, where he was primarily a football star. So, exceptional ball player as he was and, and would be by the end of that season, it was an important year for him. He still kind of made young mistakes. He'd throw to the wrong base. By his own admission, he was growing. Along the way, he was much less consistent than he would be in his later years. Perfectly natural progression for a young ball player. So it was a critical year for him as an athlete, and it was a critical time to be Jackie Robinson. He, of course, was that person beforehand and was known as as a star athlete, but nothing like the attention that he would get that year. So. To experience all of that before breaking into the major leagues, to really have some time with that was a critical part of the development. The last point where you asked about the sources for games, you know, there are many newspapers that covered the games. It was, as I mentioned, a minor league, but a very popular minor league. They get 15,000 fans regularly, sometimes more in Montreal and on the road. Uh, and there were several newspapers always covering the games, including French language. I don't speak French, but I did have some help with translation. When we got a little into the later years, in 1949, which is the metaphorical summer in the book, he is just the best baseball player alive. Uh, he, better than Williams that year, better than Stan Musial that year. There was no better baseball player. And some of the game and, and play-by-play, I got some film from Major League Baseball. I did some work for MLB Network. Uh, and so they were very grateful they supplied me with some audio and video. And that went into it, too, uh, along with some player interviews. So, you know, you're piecing it together. And, of course, in New York, there were numerous newspapers covering every game. And so that kind of detail, you don't all get it from one source. You piece a little bit from here, a little bit from there. You listen to what you do and try to convey it accurately and make it your own as as best you can.
1: And then for his life off the field, uh, first starting in Montreal, that was fascinating you know, because I I don't follow baseball that closely. So I didn't realize that's where he started. And so you've got the language barrier. But Rachel Robinson remembers that fondly. And it seems like they kind of were really accepted and lived in a community in ways that, you know, it's kind of hard to imagine now baseball players living, you know, in a neighborhood. And it sounded like they really appreciated that. And did that come from your interviews with her.
2: It started with that, and, and they lived together in an all-white and French-speaking neighborhood in Montreal. And in those days, there was certainly racism, right? It wasn't a, an equal field, but it wasn't the the sort of primary racial tension that it was in the United States. There was a greater divide over things like religion and language in, in Montreal than there was a black-white divide. It was not unusual at all to go to an outdoor eating place and have black Canadians and Caucasian Canadians eating together and so it wasn't the way that it was in the American South in those days um I spoke again I began speaking with Rachel but then I was able to speak there with quite a number of people that was able to speak both white fans and black fans who recalled being kids in that summer it was a really big deal that Jackie Robinson was coming to play for the Montreal Royals it was a point of pride for the people of Montreal not just for baseball fans but because of the significance of it it was uh a big point of pride is a big point of pride within the Black community. And he went to a Black church when he could on, on Sunday, he and Rachel. And, you know, when you do these things, you speak to a couple of people and then they say, oh, well, you should speak to this person, that person. So I really did get to speak to quite a lot of people who, who remembered him. Some people had uh, mementos, you know, a game program, uh you know, a hat, those kind of things from those days. People had really sort of a good recollection. And then, again, you could, you could, some of the off-field stuff was mentioned in the papers, not as much, but but that was really the way to, the way I was able to do it.
1: I really appreciated the view of his ball playing from both regular people, but also you mentioned Mitzi Melnick and yeah. the way that she almost like rushed to the the baseball field when he was playing. Is that one of those people who somebody directed you to? Or? She,
2: she was one of the early ones, so her son Mitch Melnick. He's a very popular radio sports talk person in Montreal, and I knew him. I, I covered uh, hockey for quite a bit of time at Sports Illustrated, and so I spent some time in Montreal, and so I knew Mitch a bit. And I called him saying, "Hey, you know, would you know anybody who might like? Well, you could try my mom." And um, so I tried his mom, and she had a wonderful memory, um, and it brought to light a little bit of some of the sort of empathies and sympathies among the. The Jewish community at that time and the Black community. So when Robinson makes his debut in Montreal, you know we're we're barely a year from the concentration camps being liberated. So the Jewish community in Montreal was, and and there were others within that community I spoke to. They, along with the non-Jewish community, along with other people, they had a particular sort of rooting interest and really cared about what he was doing and aligned behind him. So yeah, she was one of those people and she steered me to to other people and and, yeah, it's it's all kind of an organic path in some ways.
1: Understand. And then the second season is 1949. And I'm not sure how many people remember that he was called to the House on American Activities Committee to testify. And can you talk about what that meant both for him and the broader community.
2: Absolutely. So, you know, later in his life, Robinson got quite involved in the civil rights movement and, and politically active, but at this time, so we're now talking about 1949 and he's uh, just 30 and he sort of eloquent, so to speak on the ball field with the way he played, but he conscientiously stayed out of any political commentary or social commentary. And in that year, Paul Robeson, who was a famous African-American leader, he'd been an athlete and now he's a, a baritone singer and actor. And and he was also a, a public communist. He was uh, supported the Communist Party. And he said, oh, I would never, neither I nor any black man would go fight on behalf of the U.S. in a war against the Soviet Union. Look how badly we're treated in the U.S. They don't treat us that way in the Soviet Union. And it was known that that Robinson, who was in the military here, where he was put up on a bogus court-martial, he definitely suffered racism and and racial indignity and and worse, but nonetheless, he was a believer, and he always retained this in his life, he was a believer in sort of the American government, the American military, the army, and he disagreed. He felt that, of course, he would go fight for the United States, you know, whatever other faults the country had, he believed it was his country, and he would fight on the country's behalf in a war. And so the House Committee on american Activities, they were, you know, they, they were sort of on the lookout for communists. They were trying to label people and bring them in. And they saw this as an opportunity to have a very prominent African-American sort of take down another prominent African-American in Robeson. It was with some reluctance, but Robinson went down, spoke in Washington, and delivered a, really a very beautiful speech. It's about 25 paragraphs. And he talks a lot about the importance of access to the American way. He talks about equality, and he spends one paragraph saying, listen, I don't agree with Paul Robeson. He can't speak for for all of us to say that. That's not true. I I would fight in I'm not being nearly as eloquent as his um, speech was, which was written by a man named Lester Granger, who was a prominent um, African-American journalist. So, so that was achieved, that sort of taking down, so to speak, I'm I'm doing the air quotes here of Paul Robeson, but it was more of an opportunity for Robinson to speak out on behalf of African-Americans. What's interesting is that the, the, the Communist Party in America, like the Daily Worker newspaper, they hitched themselves very much to integration, including in baseball, but just throughout society. And of course, Robinson supported integration. Uh, and he made the point that I'm not a communist, but that doesn't mean I disagree with everything the communists feel. It's if, if they're saying it's wrong to treat people this way, they're right, whether they're a communist or a capitalist. So the a very nuanced speech, a very, uh, you know, I, I'm sure people can find it somewhere. Uh, and really, sort of the first glimpse we get of Robinson as, well, I mentioned the speech was written by Lester Granger, but those are the words that were very eloquent, but the thoughts were Robinson, and he knew what he wanted to say. And we see him for the first time expressing himself on the political and social issues that would come to define sort of his actions in his post-career life.
1: Did he ever come to regret anything about that speech?
2: What he regretted, Kevin, was the arena that it was in front of the House Committee of American Activities. He didn't regret what he said, but he regretted hurting Robeson. And Robeson, for his part, never pushed back, just continued in his own belief, maintained great respect for Robinson. And Robinson realized that while he would always disagree with Robeson on this particular issue, they were partners in the same fight, and he respected Robeson so much. And so I think he did feel regret that he had damaged in some way Robeson, but not quite regret for the the opinions that he expressed.
1: And that really came across in the book in that at that point in his career, he wasn't jumping to get involved with politics, but he was firm in his beliefs and wasn't afraid to speak out about them. And that grows as you go through the book. To me, it helped me understand his later post-baseball career and the level of visibility that he had. And in the third season is uh, 1956. You described that as the autumn. Can you talk about what's happening with him?
2: Absolutely. So that, that turned out to be the last season that he... Played And and it appealed to me on on a couple of different levels, one from the athletic standpoint. So 1955, the season before, the very famous season for Brooklyn Dodger fans and in baseball, the one year that the Dodgers beat the Yankees in the World Series. And these sort of 10 years that Robinson was on the team, the Dodgers were a great team. They had other great players like Duke Snyder and Roy Campanella and Pee Wee Reese. But these were Robinson Dodgers. And um, they would win their National League year after year, essentially. And then they'd lose to the Yankees. And 55 was the year that they beat the Yankees, but it was a very difficult year for Robinson physically. And he was much less of a player than he was at his peak. We talked about how absolutely dominant he was at his peak. And in 56, there's a lot of talk that he might retire or the Dodgers would let him go. And he kind of came back and it's very moving. He was much heavier than he'd been. Uh shortly after that year, he was diagnosed with diabetes, and it's very likely that he had pre-diabetic conditions, he had circulation issues. So he's playing through a lot of pain. He didn't play every day in 56, but he played extremely well, and he worked really, really hard. And it was this sort of show of will and conviction from an athlete standpoint that I found very moving, seeing what he, what he decided to do. It's sort of, you know, I'm Jackie Robinson, and he was an extremely effective player, still far off from his peak when he was such a dominant player, but a very, very good player. And the Dodgers, again, went to the World Series in 1956, They lost this time, but they would not have gotten there by any stretch of the imagination without what Robinson contributed. So I I like the chance of seeing him and then the opportunity to describe him in his last game on the field and the old saying that an athlete dies twice and get to see him walk away from it. It was also an interesting year because his relationship with Dr. King, he'd been working for the NAACP. He'd begun to segue into a life of social activism, into a life beyond baseball, I mean, j- just to backtrack for, as a reminder for people, when Robinson broke in in 1946 with the Royals, Martin Luther King was a 17-year-old theology student, and nobody had ever heard of him. And in 1956, by the time Robinson was retiring, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King is leading, we're now nearly at the end of the uh, Montgomery bus boycott. So taught, you talk about a 10, 11-year span in this country's history, my goodness, you know, and, and Robinson was by dint of his platform and where he stood and, you know, what baseball meant to America in those days, much, much larger, even than it means today, he was at the forefront in terms of visibility. So that autumn season, we're getting to see him leave his athletic life behind and begin to enter this other arena that would define the the last sort of 15 years of his life.
1: And then that last season is 1972. You called it winter. And there's definitely a winding down of things in a lot of different ways.
2: Yeah, so he, he had 72, which was the year that he, he would die that year in October, just the age of 53. It's amazing, right? Rachel, who is still alive, is now 100. Uh, and and I, when I was speaking with her in her 90s, she lived more of her life without him than with him. So he died very young, but it wasn't just the year of his death. It was a very active year for him. He was very physically compromised at this point. His eyesight was really really going. He had circulation issues again. He had heart issues. But he continued to be involved in things. He started a black construction company. And it was also the year that he sort of came back into baseball. Basically, from the end of his career in 1956 until 1972, he pretty much was never in a baseball stadium. He never had a job with Major League Baseball. He was never a manager or a coach or even a sort of front office, public relations type person. And he started get going increasingly dissatisfied with baseball for not promoting blacks in the front office into managerial positions into other places. And Robinson at least felt they were making good progress on the field, but not so much in management. So he let that be known, as we've sort of established. He was a man who let his feelings be known. He still embraced baseball. When he got into the Hall of Fame in 1962, he of course went and thanked everybody from Major League Baseball, extremely gracious. Uh, He still loved the game, but he just wasn't partaking in Major League Baseball on a day-to-day basis. And early that year in 1972, Gil Hodges died. He had been a teammate of Jackie Robinson's, and he died very young in his 40s of a sudden heart attack. And Robinson went to the funeral, and at that time he saw several teammates he hadn't seen for a long time, including Don Newcomb, who was a black pitcher, and he was one of the very few former black player who did have a job in baseball, worked for the Los Angeles Dodgers out in LA now. And he kind of got Robinson back into it. He said, hey, why don't you come out? Maybe we can do something together. And and through that, the agency of Newcomb and some other people, Robinson ended up going back out to Dodger Stadium in 1972 in the summer and going on the field, being part of a ceremony. And that led to him going on the field at the World Series that year in 1972 where he's given an award and he's standing up there and it's sort of classic Robinson. He begins very graciously thanking the commissioner, Bowie Kuhn, thanking his teammates, Pee Wee Reese was there and other people and saying how he owed so much to them. And he said toward the end, you know, I'm extremely pleased and extremely proud, but I'll even be more pleased and proud when we have a black manager on the field. And that was basically his last statement. He didn't miss an opportunity to make his point and this came out nine days before he died so it was a very interesting packed year of his life that i felt you know it could represent a lot of what he stood for by showing it
1: he was an old 53 that's what's so striking even compared to some of his teammates he's not able to move around in the same way and you know and i don't know if that's a combination of the diabetes and just the wear and tear from earlier years
2: I, I definitely, the diabetes had a the a big factor. You know, there, there wasn't the care available; certainly not anything like what it was today. Uh, he, by his own admission, a man who did not smoke, did not drink alcohol, but he did like his sweets, which is not such a sin, but in his condition, probably not a great thing to do. But of course, there was the you know the enormous stress, right, of being the player. I, I sometimes think about when he was breaking in; there were these horrible racist threats. And there were people who didn't want to play on the field with him. And Rachel would fear violence. And that was all horrible. And then the people who supported him, who loved him, they would still say, the African-American newspapers would say, you know, when he comes to bat, the hopes and dreams of 15 million Americans are on his back. So even the people who were pulling for him, the the pressure is enormous. So he, he had white hair by his early 40s. And, you know, the notion that there was stress upon him, it's certainly, it can't be more really, given what we know than a guess or a conjecture, but it seems like it cannot have helped his physical condition towards the end.
1: The latter part of the book, I really appreciated the way that you emphasize the partnership of their marriage, Rachel and Jackie Robinson, and and how she, she lived her own life. And so the things that she's gone on to do don't come as a surprise.
2: She's such a remarkable woman, Kevin. And when I met her and did my story, she was 90 or 91 or so, and and she looked 68. I guess that's good genes and good luck, but she'd gotten her nursing degree and she'd studied at UCLA. And during the time when Jackie was in the majors, she sort of put that all aside. Like she was extremely intelligent, extremely capable and intelligent and confident enough to say, okay, for this period of our lives, what my husband is doing it's so big. He needs my support. We need to do this together. So she played that role. and she was very much his sort of security, um, his strength through all those d- difficult times. But after he retired, she did, it, as you alluded to, she began to move out and do the things that she had always planned to do. And she had a job in, um, in health services. She worked at Yale. She had various jobs uh, within the health field very extremely respected, extremely accomplished. Uh, And then after Robinson, after Jackie died, she pretty much immediately within a year founded the Jackie Robinson Foundation, which we still have today, more than 50 years later. And its focus has been sending kids to college. And not only sending them, but, and this was true from the beginning, which made them unique then. Now more and more groups are realizing it. But it was often some well-meaning groups who would come up with the money to help somebody go and say, okay, have a great time at school, Johnny. But a lot of times these were kids that didn't come with the support system, didn't come with the, what they needed to stay in school and to do what they had to do. The Jackie Robinson Foundation had a mentor, they stay with you, they're with you the whole four years until you get out and you're getting financial support. And what's amazing about it, it's still today basically an idea that she came up with in her kitchen table in 1972 is still how it operates now under Della Britton, a wonderful leader of the Jackie Robinson Foundation. And they have a graduation rate of 98%, something along those lines, and they send hundreds and hundreds of kids to four-year colleges. You could go to vocational school and you could be literally uh, a physicist at Harvard and everything in, in between. And so it's, it's a great piece of her life's work, which she did under her husband's name. It's truly remarkable.
1: Yeah. I do wonder with the uh, the World Series this year, they talked about the fact that this is a first World Series with no U.S.-born Black players on either team, even though, you know, Dusty Baker is on the winning team managing that. But are people in baseball aware that they need to do something because it just doesn't reflect well on baseball?
2: So listen, I, I think that it's, uh, the fact that there is such a small percentage of, of african American is, is a definite concern for baseball from every reason you can imagine, right? From some sort of social wellness and responsibility reasons, but also just from marketing reasons, right? You want people in every of every kind and type, which, by the way, was part of the whole Robinson experiment in the beginning, with, let, let's attract Black fans to the game, right? So sadly or not sadly, but, but truth in this country, progress often has the economic component attached to it. And I think they would really like to. And a different ways that they haven't been able to get as many African-American young people involved. I think that, you know, there's a lot of different explanations. There are more Latino players in the game than there, there have been, right? And there's, there's Asian players, not a huge number, but there's some. And more and more kids are playing football um, or playing basketball. It's not as much. Baseball has never been a great city game, and it's not huge in the cities. The one thing, though, is that football offers scholarships to so many schools that you can go to and play football. If I can go to Central Connecticut State on a scholarship, now I have my education and I can begin a life. So you get more and more kids thinking about football as a way to at least get to college, way to expand themselves, and and there are just far, far fewer opportunities in baseball. Of course, they exist; there are some. So I think that's some of it. I think it's uh, you know uh, just a change in trend, and I think that baseball really does try, uh, but there there are things they could do more aggressively to try to you know recruit in that market and have really a long term view because that's what it takes.
1: Great. Are there other things that you want to be sure our listeners understand about this book?
2: I guess two things, you know, the the way of looking at a life in sort of episodes, there's a series of uh, documentary film called Seven Up, the Seven Up series, and then 14 Up, 21 Up uh, by by a filmmaker who's now passed away named Michael Apted. And he looked at a cohort of British kids, seven-year-olds, and just sort of documented their life. And then put away the camera, and seven years later, when they were 14, came back and filmed the same kid. And this idea of, of looking at an episodic life in that way, I found very compelling as a, as a storytelling vehicle, and I found it useful for me with it the inspiration for how I chose to structure the book. Uh, and so I hope that people find that appealing. And the other thing, you know, the first title of the book is True, The Four Seasons of Jackie Robinson. I'm just going to read one sentence, which is why it's called True, and it's sort of the epigraph at the front of the book. Whatever the context and circumstances, Jackie Robinson remained true, true to the effort and the mission, true to his convictions and his contradictions. Uh, he was a man of contradictory feeling, as we all are, I suppose. He was firm and consistent in his opinion on an issue, but it wasn't necessarily always the way we consider, well, all liberals feel this way about everything and all conservatives feel this way about everything. He went both ways in public life and his private. So that's just kind of a very interesting thing. That was probably the most global thing that I really realized and came to learn about Robinson more acutely in in doing the book.
1: Well, thank you. It's really, uh, it was an enjoyable book to read.
2: Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it.
0: That was journalist and author Costa Kennedy speaking with bio member Kevin McGruder about his latest book, True, The Four Seasons of Jackie Robinson, published in April, 2022 by St. Martin's press. We recorded this interview via zoom last year on November 29th to learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website. BiographersInternational.org. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a wonderful day.